Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Last week, we talked about the terms salt and light as idioms and understanding them within their context being covenant terms. And so when we even hear things, not really in our culture, but other cultures, such as there's salt between us, knowing that that is like a covenant term, that is covenant language and salt cannot be destroyed. It is incorruptible and indestructible. The chemical compound at the very least will dissolve and become part of it. So point being that God would like, by, by Jesus calling his followers at that time, those in the crowd who were actually true disciples, uh, salt, and then, of course, and light. He's connecting them to the whole story of the Bible. And, of course, that's why when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, you know, this is just like the whole biblical narrative coming to a head in and through the person of Jesus. So, of course, a little bit of recap there. All right, so as we start to transition now, we're going to start to see in the Sermon on the Mount where it takes a turn to where now Jesus is concerned by fleshing some things out that what makes this, like, Jesus society of disciples different is the way in which we live. It kind of like the question, how now shall we then live in light of being a follower of Jesus? Well, we're getting into that now. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount isn't everything that the Gospels have to say as far as the teaching of Jesus, but it is something and it is the series we're in. So of course, we're going to hone in on that. My point of saying that is, as we look at like the details here of these passages, um, don't lose the forest <laughs> while we look at individual trees, if you will, don't lose sight of the bigger forest. But yeah, so I think it's helpful. <clears throat> and I, th- I mentioned last week, but we want to remember there's every, like every transition in the Sermon on the Mount has a hinge passage. And so what I mean by that is that it helps us interpret what comes next. This isn't a bunch of just disjointed random teachings. Jesus is getting at something here. That's why I wanted to recap a little bit because part of this whole like connecting us to the whole story of the Bible means that even the ethics that we find in Torah, in the Old Testament, if you will, um, is Jesus isn't coming against it. He's not saying, hey, because he's going to, you're going to hear in the passage him say things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That is not contrastive. That is not him saying, hey, I am against what has been said. I mean, that would be weird because if we truly be- believe that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, <laughs> the God of Israel <laughs> incarnate, then he's the one that told Moses to write down what he did. And of course, you know, covenant does make ramifications. There are changes. As new covenant people, there are differences versus the old covenant. We are not an old, like, a, a, a theocracy, the theocracy that was ancient Israel uh, and as a nation. And as God's people, though, as a covenant people, there are differences within the new covenant. But nevertheless, he's, I, what Jesus is saying is by a you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, is not contrastive to the intention of God's law, but is corrective. He's trying to correct the the misnomers, the misunderstandings, the misapplications of God's 
law and intention and ethics. So yeah, so the hinge passage for us was, of course, in Matthew 5.20, which uh, reads, For I tell you, and Jesus speaking here, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And uh, gosh, like I, I actually think this passage is awesome <laughs> and intriguing because most people freak out when they read this and then they just start going to weird conclusions like, you know, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to tell us how how terrible we are so that we, you know, it gives us a standard to live by that we can't live up to. So uh, it just shows us the need for the gospel. And I mean, I don't think that's completely BS, but like, I mean, why would Jesus give us, his people, a bunch of ethics to live by with the assumption that they can't live it? Like that to me doesn't seem really believable. Um, Not at all. So I, I think that we have to qualify something here before we get into the text. I think we, to understand this, like, righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, which I will now shorten to the greater righteousness or the true righteousness, we have to understand something about the two problems of the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And of course, disclaimer, this does not mean that all scribes and Pharisees had it wrong. There were, uh, Jesus probably came from a Pharisaical tradition. Uh, you know, Nicodemus, who, at least in the Gospel of John, seems to uh, enjoy, rather enjoy Jesus and uh, find him favorable, was a Pharisee. Um, and as far as scribes, Matthew was, yeah, he was formerly a tax collector, but he also operated as a scribe. I mean, heck, he could have been documenting these kinds of things. It wasn't like he just wrote the Gospel of Matthew out of memory uh, years later, but probably was documenting as a scribe, as he would be, the journey as he went, <clears throat> and then probably composed it more formally at some point. But yeah, anyways, so not all scribes and Pharisees were bad, but how about the main problems with scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day? Well, one, they would never admit to being poor in spirit or some of the other key statements found in the macroisms. So they, they wouldn't have the humility to say, you know what, like I need, like I, I just have this innate and intrinsic need and reliance upon God. They would never admit such a thing. They would not want to be called poor in spirit. And so that's a humility problem there, of course. And then they, they practice, the second thing, they practiced this external ceremonial righteousness, but neglected the inner condition of the heart and the true essence of mercy. Their righteousness made them conceited, whereas Jesus' followers' righteousness is to make them compassionate. So the key difference, see, we're talking about two different kinds of righteousness here. This righteousness that like sometimes when we use the word righteous, even in our modern terms, unfortunately it comes like, comes across condescending or derogatory or something. And that's sad to me because Christians should be righteous and strive to be righteous and not have a problem when someone says, man, you're a righteous guy or righteous girl. We need to redeem this language is my point. And so the righteousness though of the Pharisees was this external ceremonial kind of showmanship that led to conceit. It made them conceited. Whereas Jesus followers, the kind of righteousness, the greater righteousness that he's getting at makes them compassionate. That is two different trajectories, my friends. So in summary here, the the religious leaders of the day that Jesus is kind of having a contrast with because his audience, at least for the Sermon on the Mount, was very diverse. I mean, he had some of those who were genuine uh, followers of him at that point. True disciples, right? Then he had people who were following him, but kind of curious, kind of in this place where they didn't know where their loyalties lied yet. Maybe with him, maybe not. They're kind of figuring this out. And then he had people in the crowd who were there to listen, just know how to critique him. <laughs> it's a very diverse crowd, and that was pretty telling of his whole ministry. He always had such a mixed crowd, and very few times did he have this, but he sometimes did have this like private teaching with his true disciples. But anyways, <clears throat> the religious leaders, 
what they did wrong is they heightened the standard of God's law in terms of religious and ceremonial performance. Yet, they also lowered the standard of God's law in terms of the interior motivations and even compassion towards others. Let me say it this way. They got it wrong. (laughs) And that's Jesus's critique. So having a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees is both a difficult thing, but also kind of an easy thing to do. It's difficult in that what Jesus is doing, he's going to draw it to the center and the core of who we are in our heart. He wants to get to the heart of the matter, not just the external behaviors. But yeah, at the same time, it's also easier because it's not just about this like performance as to why, like, you know, how people and observers will write us off as having it together or not. But yeah, so this is the hinge passage in verse 20, and that was connected to last week's passage, but I think it's important because it sets up everything that is about to be said. So let's read verses 21 through 26 and uh, start getting into it. So just read along with me. You have heard it said that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. All right. Uh, Let's get into a few things here. Um, I think first thing to distinguish is that murder is different from killing. Uh, You know, you know, do not murder. And I mean, this was this wasn't the challenging part of what Jesus had to say. This was the assumption. So I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Like when you murder is obviously unjustifiably taking initiative to kill someone, you know, whether for uh, personal reasons, vendetta, revenge, even, gosh, yeah, just unjustifiably, like, you know, not having proper cause to kill someone. And, I mean, in this case, this isn't, like, government ethics. This isn't Jesus writing to governors of how to govern, because there is such thing as, like, capital punishment within governments in ancient past and even today, you know, political issue as far as whether right or not. I'll leave that up to you and your convictions to wrestle out. The point is that, Killing, in terms of self-defense, has always been merited in a, actually, like, I should say in an unfortunate way. I mean, obviously, that's not ideal. But yeah, so that's not the part that's countercultural <laughs> in this ethic here. And also, the other thing I want to make sure we understand, as Jesus starts to get into the ethical statements, there's something, maybe a word or a phrase that you want to highlight, circle, and underline in your Bible. And it's when it says, you know, in verse 22, but I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister. So brother or sister. Pay attention to those kind of key terms because what Jesus is doing here is showcasing kind of some ethical standards in the context of his fellow disciples. So brother or sister language is not literally just your brother or sister, obviously. It's kind of like when we use the language brother or sister in Christ. So uh, ethics within the community of disciples, within the community of the church. Now, of course, these things ought to and often do apply more broadly than that. But at least here in this passage we're looking at today uh, with this passage and then the next one, it's going to be more of that context. Whereas next week, there's a transition in Matthew 5, 38 to where it's moves some ethics who are not part of the Jesus community 
and are even those who are considered our quote-unquote enemies. So yeah. All right, uh, verse 22 here. Um, I, I, I like that what Jesus does here is he does not leave his audience and then us, of course, remain satisfied with our current understanding of the ethics. You know, righteousness is not just about the restraint of murder, but the restraint of anger, as he says. Because, see, the point of the law was not just to say, well, don't murder, and if you didn't murder, you didn't do anything wrong in this command. Like, of course, that's like the superlative, don't murder, duh. But like, man, anger is that which eventually, if left unchecked, <laughs> might lead to murder. Now, l- l- let's let's address one of the potential elephants in the room. Not all anger is evil, of course. At times, God is angry, but it's holy and a righteous anger. Likewise, even as humans, I, we totally, at times, can be angry and not sin. I mean, in fact, in Ephesians 4.26, even said, Paul says that. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. So, you're going to have anger. And that's not inherently sinful. What you do with that anger is what's going to determine if it is or isn't. For example, we can be angry over injustice. We can be angry over sex trafficking. We can be angry of uh, someone being abused, taken advantage of. We could be, those things can anger us. Now, what we do with that anger will, again, determine whether it's righteous or unrighteous. Question is, oh, where does the anger lead you? To take action of righteousness? Then great. Or to take, you know, revenge? Then that's not good. That's a sin. And I, I love this quote from the movie Batman Begins. It's a great quote. It says, your anger makes you powerful, but if you let it, it will destroy you. Your anger makes you powerful, but if you let it, it will destroy you. The point is this. Anger is this raw power of massive potential, which can be used for righteousness, but usually, and at least in the context of what Jesus is going, he's going more on the negative example in this passage, the raw power turns into a weapon that we wield against others. So beware of what anger does to you and to what you do with it. You see, because anger not only has the potential to lead to actual physical violence, which it does, but malicious anger has immediate danger as it causes us to act violently to them in terms of trying to destroy someone with our words in order to destroy their reputation. See, you can destroy someone without literally taking a knife and stabbing them. <laughs> you can destroy someone with your words. And that's why the, the next part of that passage, when he goes into these insults, um, that ties into this whole thing. He's like, hey, wait, there's an immediate danger. You may never murder someone, but you may be murdering people with your words. You might become a verbal assassin, if you will. And so, uh, for example, when he says, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court, to the Sanhedrin, in other words, um, this, this word for insult in your translation uh, might just read raka, which is, uh, it's an Aramaic term, which basically means empty-headed, you know, like a rockhead, but empty-headed. And so it's, it's insulting someone's intelligence. It's basically calling them something stupid, but, uh, which doesn't suit, sound too bad to us. Sometimes even to friends we say that, but that was a lot more in their day uh, of a worse term. And, uh, you know, in that case, it's kind of like, wait, wait a second. If you do that, you're probably going to have to go deal with this in the religious community. So he uses the context of the Sanhedrin. You're going to have to go, that's going to be taken to the Sanhedrin. You have an issue there. And then the next term, this, this is the more serious one. In most translations, it'll read the term fool, which comes from the Greek word moros, 
But this this needs some unpacking because this not only implies idiocy, like being an idiot, but also immorality. It's like calling someone an evil idiot, but it's more than derogatory because it's also condemning. It transliterates a Hebrew word for rebel, which for them, when you were a rebel against God, <laughs> you're basically <clears throat> labeling them as someone who is condemned because you're rebelling against God. <laughs> so we have to remember that this is in the context of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, if you will, disciples. So you're basically saying, when you say fool in that context, as rebel, let's like unpack this here. Fool in their world was kind of like this term of rebel. It's this immoral, Id- evil idiot, someone who's against God. Uh, you're basically saying to them, go to hell. And again, I know we kind of sometimes say, well, I don't say this. That would, I hope you don't say that phrase. But we, at least in our culture, we hear this phrase casually still. Like, hey, go to hell. Like, and that's terrible. First of all, it's terrible. But like, I'm talking about this being used in a very serious manner. When you are like basically pronouncing a curse on someone, telling them, I, I, I'm, I'm cursing you to go to hell. It's that kind of thing. Pronouncing such judgment on someone makes you liable to the judgment. It's Jesus' message. Basically, saying go to hell to someone is like putting positioning yourself to be liable in, in a position to go to hell. <laughs> That's like, whoa, serious terms. I mean, talk about the power of words. By cursing a fellow disciple, we're basically cursing ourselves because this is in the context of brothers and sisters. You don't call someone who's a fellow believer to go to hell. You First off, you can't put that kind of curse and condemnation on someone. But like what that reveals is something in your heart that reveals a problem. And that's why in, in the passage, it says, you know, in this case, cursing someone to that degree is liable to hellfire and um, or, you know, fire of hell, and which is literally the fire of Gehenna, which you've probably heard that term if you've grown up in the church, Gehenna, which I, I wish we would just retain that in our translations. Maybe you should do this every time in the Gospels, because the Gospels are the only places in the New Testament that have the word hell. <laughs> Funny story there. Um, the only places that have hell are in the Gospels. And so maybe I would just put a note to always just remember to think Gehenna, because Hell was not this abstract spiritual dimension of, you know, all these pictures that we unfortunately have in our mind from medieval art. (laughs) Wow, when our theology is derived from art, that's a problem. Uh, Gehenna was a place, uh, it was a valley outside of Jerusalem to the south where it had a fire that would perpetually burn the trash that was thrown into it. It was a burning pile of trash. What you threw into it got incinerated and burnt and annihilated. Yeah, so, uh, and according to a few passages in the Old Testament, uh, it would be a place of God's judgment. And so that's where, you know, Jesus, for example, in the Gospels, when he, like, like talks about the fate of the wicked or fate of the people who re- reject him, rebel against him, etc., uh, unbelievers, if you will, um, he uses the language of Gehenna to talk about the their final end. And so they have a picture in mind when they hear such things. They're hearing, oh my gosh, Gehenna, oh yeah, that, that's the place where we throw all of our trash onto that biring, uh, burning pile of fire. And so when something is thrown into the fire, it is consumed and burnt up. It's not like tormented forever and ever and ever in this fire pit. The trash burns up. So I don't know, there's a little side note. But point of being this is they would... They would recognize this imagery as, oh my gosh, like I can picture what you're talking about here with Gehenna. Like, and it's liable to that. And 
I like what N.T. Wright says here, and I want to qualify this for a second, because I think there's more than just a future dimension to this. This isn't just saying, like, hey, these kind of people who have this condition of heart um, are, like, liable to this future judgment. I I think it's this, like, judgment that's in the present, too. Let me read you what N.T. Wright says, then I'll make a comment on it. He writes this. And if you're the sort of person who sneers at everybody and calls them names, the fire inside of you may eventually become all that's left of you. As Gehenna, the smoldering garbage dump of ancient Jerusalem, may take you over completely. End quote. Yeah, I mean, gosh, like, what a great quote. Because Gehenna, at this point, and how it's used here, I mean, it's not just something that you would be, like, thrown into in some eschatological future judgment. It's something that, man, if you have this anger, this fiery burning, uh, you know, raw power that's being used and abused in ways that are not righteous anger, man, like that, that Gehenna is within you, that burning pile that tries to incinerate everything that is thrown into it. And that anger eventually will destroy you. Going back to the Batman quote, your anger makes you powerful, but if you let it, it will destroy you. It is raw power that unchecked can end up consuming us completely. That's why what Jesus says the behaviors here are not just the issue. It's not just don't murder and you've solved the problem of righteousness. The greater righteousness that Jesus is getting at is the righteousness that uh, puts into check that the anger might consume us if unchecked. That Gehenna isn't just this danger that we would walk into or be thrown into, whatever, but that it would overtake us completely if unchecked. Now, I think verse 24 in this passage is the most shocking, in my opinion. Uh, If you look at that again, I've read this passage so many times. Oh, starting in verse 23, sorry. Uh, I've read this passage so many times. I've not noticed it like this. So let let me see if you catch this. Let me read it. Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Pause. Wait, wait, wait. If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. That sounds backwards, because... Wait, you're telling me if I realize that they're mad at me to go reconcile? But I thought it was just, I, I, this always was read to me, or I read this as like, if I was, you know, leaving my gift on the altar, you know, in very contextualized terms, if I was at church, <laughs> at the gathering of believers on a Sunday, and, <clears throat> and I realized that I had anger towards someone, I need to go reconcile. No, no, in this verse, it's the opposite, it's, uh, when you realize that someone is angry with you, when someone has a quarrel with you, when someone has a qualm with you, when someone has a problem with you, you, you within, especially in the context of brothers and sisters, because you're not, obviously you're going to make a lot of unbelievers really angry at being a Jesus follower. This is more in the context of brothers and sisters. When you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, a fellow spiritual family member has something against you, go to them. Reconcile first. Reconciliation precedes worship. And worship proceeds from reconciliation. Because what, what, at worship, what we're celebrating is the reconciliation we have in Christ and worshiping God in light of that. So we can't live this dualistic spirituality where, you know, oh, well, I'm reconciled with God, but I'm not reconciled to my brother or sister, and as if that's okay. Reconciliation is twofold, vertically with God and horizontally with one another. And I kept, I kept thinking about this, and I'm like, man, that's a hard thing to do. It's one thing to, when I remember I have a problem with someone to go to them, but when I remember someone has a problem with me to be proactive about the reconciliation, but then I thought of the macrisms. Happy are the peacemakers. Ah, peacemakers are proactive about creating 
harmony, and reconciliation. Even at the times when someone is mad at us, and it may be very one-sided. Of course, I think there's usually two sides to every story, but hey, let's just say there is. Go and be proactive. Go and be the peacemaker. I thought that was the most challenging thing here. Very, very applicable. I mean, how many of us you know, would have our upcoming Sunday plans change if we took this verse seriously. I know that, you know, a lot of us are, if you're listening to this this week, a lot of services are, some are in person, but a lot are still online. But instead of going to church in person or online, we would go to reconcile with someone we had a dispute or quarrel with or they were mad at us. Man, that'd be challenging. I want to press on for the sake of time here, okay? But the one thing I wanted to say about verses 25 and 26 is uh, basically it's practical advice in that, hey, do you really want to go to court over the issue? Do you really want the anger and the quarrel that has not been checked clearly, has not been resolved individually to go to the court where uh, we all know that the system itself, the judicial system in their world and in ours is not flawless to say the least and is likely corrupt. So you really want to take your chances on finding justice there the advice that Jesus gives is, well, you know, advice, more like ethical imperatives, is to solve a dispute together without taking it to the judicial system. The picture of a society of believers here is one that where we begin to forge the solutions internally instead of needing external solutions from corrupt systems. All right, whoo, verses 27 through 30, let's do this, adultery. All right, verses 27 to 30. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell, to Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. I really think we should just like put Gehenna every time it says hell to really remember it's a yeah, anyways. So uh, adultery then and now was defined as committing sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. Now, Jesus does what he did with the murder and anger, but this time with adultery and lust. The purpose of the Torah was not to suggest that adultery was bad, but lust was permitted. And that's kind of Jesus' point. The heart of the Torah was always meant to forbid lust, which leads to adultery since lust is adultery committed within the privacy of one's heart. I love the, the Greek text just makes paints it more clearly than the English. It's, it's not the initial look that's the issue. It's the gaze, the continual looking. Um, yeah, that entices the imagination of the heart to actually fantasize lustfully. And here's why this is important. What we fantasize about, we eventually will bring into fruition as long as it is in our power to do so. You may fantasize about being able to lift a car, but you probably won't be able to do that. So your fantasy at some point will probably end and you'll occasionally daydream about it or something. But fantasizing about lust after another person, well, it may actually be able to be acted on, or at least we will convince ourselves it is. And that is the danger of lust in your heart. You see, our heart's desires, whether good or bad, because there's both, there's good desires and bad desires, are always trying to make their way out. Desires are always trying to make their way out. They don't like to stay locked away in our imagination any more than someone who is content dreaming about a vacation versus actually going on one. And the brilliance of Jesus' teaching in the challenge is recognizing that our heart is the source of all our desires, which is the origin of all of our motivations, which is the starting point for all of our actions. It all stems from the heart. And that is why the greater righteousness, greater righteousness is the one that cultivates a healthy heart. 
I want to repeat that again here because this is really key. The brilliance of this teaching is recognizing that our heart is the source of all of our desires, which is the origin of all of our motivations, which is the starting point for all of our actions. It all stems from the heart. Now, of course, as a reminder, the heart in Jesus' lexicon, the Greek word cardia, would be the inner true person that is concealed from maybe people's assessment, but is naked before God. It's the authentic and real you. And your heart is the center and command center of all that you are and all that you do. Now, verses 29 to 30 about, you know, gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand are clearly hyperbole. Jesus is not advocating for us to cut off our lips. He's making a point that sin's dangerous trajectory can eventually lead our hearts toward a terrible destination. Being people of the New Covenant society and, you know, his followers means that we attack the heart of the issue. It's not enough just to not act on lust, to fantasize about it reveals the heart issue. So basically, go to extreme measures to not find yourself in lust. Do what you have to do. And in modern terms, like, hey, if, if for example, if pornography is a problem, put in some computer software that's going to help keep you accountable and not let you do such things. Like, might, that's the kind of his point. Go to the extremes. Do what you need to do to avoid that using hyperbolic language. And I honestly believe this is one of the most humbling and relevant verses for any Christian because, I mean, you know, can't see you in person, but if I was to ask you to raise your hand, which I'm not going to do, I bet everyone's hand would be raised if I asked you if this was a temptation. We may not act on it to the degree of adultery, but we certainly sometimes do take more than a quick glance. And we all know the difference between looking and lusting. Yeah, but I mean, thank God for mercy, right? But I mean, that's that's part of the thing is we don't want to just like, if like, oh, well, good thing Jesus forgives me. Like, this is not a passage about soteriology. This is not a passage about Jesus talking about you know, how to be saved and such. So let's not like condemn ourselves in this passage. Let's, let's know that Jesus is, although having a diverse audience, then and now, who read this text um, or hear it, he's still kind of taking an assumption, a liberty here. Hey, if you're one of my followers, here's how we're going to live to the true intentions of God's word, then and now. And so he's contextualizing that in that sense. He's like, hey, he's calling us to live as we, to be who we are supposed to be, as salt and light and etc. Now, the question does this, why did Jesus bring up this example? I mean, he's giving a few kind of, if you want to call it random, case study examples, but they're not so random. But I think this part with adultery leads us into the next two verses of 31 and 32. And the purpose behind this particular ethic is actually to protect women in his day, as you will see. Verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me just summarize the big picture here, the aim of this passage, and you should do more research on it if you'd like. The aim is to protect women from being divorced for unrighteous reasons. Now, I kid you not, there were rabbis contemporaneous to Jesus's day who, for example, Rabbi Hillel would say that, hey, if she basically ruined dinner, if she spoiled dinner or burnt your lunch, you can divorce your wife. That's terrible. And there's a different rabbi who said, if you found another woman more attractive, you can divorce your wife. These kind of shallow reasons were being taught by rabbis, students and teachers of Torah, who said that, hey, you know, you can divorce your wife if you find something indecent in her quoting Deuteronomy 24, if that's as if like the kind of indecency that Deuteronomy 24 is talking about, which is ridiculous. That is not what Mosaic, sorry, Mosaic law was getting at. Yet sadly, many rabbis taught this. For shallow reasons as burning your lunch, you could divorce her. But in Jesus' day, 
you know, most women were dependent on the men as the workers, though some of them were exceptions to that, of course. Uh, you know, for the most part, many of them were, like, so Lydia in the Book of Acts worked and all that. But most of them were dependent. And so if a woman was divorced, she was vulnerable to being without basic provision. Uh, a roof over their head, food on the table, um, etc. It was really dangerous in that day to be a widow or to be divorced as a woman, especially. So I, I think what Jesus is doing and getting it here is like, you know, you know, you've heard it said that you can write up a ticket of divorce. But I tell you, if you're divorcing your wife except for sexual immorality, man, like, you're causing her, and I, this part needs to be clarified, causing her to commit adultery. It's more of that you're causing her, you're the cause of the adultery. <laughs> He's calling out the men here, okay? So I know how this reads in the English makes it sound like you're causing her to be an adulteress. No, you're the cause of it. Jesus is calling out the men here. All right, especially in his day. So no, don't twist it right there, all right? But uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to do like a biblical theology of divorce, remarriage, marriage, and et cetera, you can find three grounds really that where divorce has permitted. In the Bible, you can be reasonably and justifiably divorced for adultery, abandonment, or abuse. Adultery, abandonment, or abuse. If any one of those committed, um, then you have grounds for divorce. Other than that, you really don't. Like, if, oh, we had some arguments about finances, or, oh, we don't like each other. Like, well, that's not grounds for divorce. I'm not saying it's the unforgivable sin. No, don't hear my heart like that. But that's not grounds for divorce in a biblical perspective. And we should take the commitment of divorce more, or a commitment of marriage more seriously. It's a covenant. And, uh, heck, it's the greatest metaphor of the gospel between the love of Jesus for his people. And so, yeah, I think we should take that more seriously. But yeah, so I mean, although only adultery is mentioned here as reasonable grounds for divorce, um, I, I was kind of wondering about that. Like, why not mention the other two, like abandonment or abuse? Why not qualify it more? But I think what Jesus does here is kind of brilliant because, you know, he doesn't need to qualify it more because he's mainly calling out the men in this case. And the women are not going to abuse or abandon their man. They're not going to abuse them because in that day, that just was not really a thing, a woman abusing a man like that. So not saying it never happened, but... And then they're not going to abandon their man, one, because of provisional and survival reasons. Like, they're just not going to do that. So the only reason a man would have a re actual just cause to divorce his wife is if she cheated on him. Sexual immorality. Adultery, if you will. So, in other words, hey, men, you need to stay committed to your commitments. Otherwise, you're causing her to, if you want to call it, be an adulteress or whatever. But the point being is, like, gosh, I mean... Uh, in the Greek here, it's this, it's a passive infinitive, the passive voice. So it's not that she's the, let me say it this way. She's not the active participant of adultery by you divorcing her. The passive verb there communicates something that she is being committed adultery against. So I don't know. I think the English translation makes it a little bit confusing. But point being, he's calling out the men and accusing them of making adultery out of the situation. Hopefully that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that Jesus is calling us to that higher standard. Like, hey, you know what? You can't just, don't be the my people, a society of people who just divorce so flippantly that take this covenant marriage, because covenant is so important to Jesus. He didn't come to abolish covenant, but to fulfill it. Don't be casual about it. If she, if she cheats on you, okay, you have grounds. And you may reconcile or not, but you have grounds. And there's other parts in the Bible that talk about marriage and such, but... In Jesus' day, this was an issue. And the religious leaders, the people who were so-called so righteous, the Pharisees and scribes, 
teaching and participating in flippant divorce practices sometimes for, oh, she spoiled the dinner, or, oh, I found a woman, another woman more attractive. No. In this new society, in the better way of being human, in the greater righteousness, is we keep our commitments. And the only reason we would divorce if it came to that is if she commits adultery. So calling out the men here, okay? Especially in this passage. But hey, women, you too. Let's be let's be honest about this. But yeah, I mean, this. I think this is a powerful thing. Now, we're, a few comments on this last thing, and we'll put it all together here. Uh, last few verses. Verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean you no. Anything more is from the evil one. Basically, if you have a problem with... You have to put, like, I swear to God, first off, that's kind of taking the Lord's name in vain. And I'm not, like, this hyper person about that passage. Like, you know, I don't know. But, like, that is the wrong usage of that. We shouldn't be, as believers, I don't think we should be saying that. I swear to God. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I think that's, we're being too casual about being able to swear to God in that regard. Like, Jesus' point is, like, hey, you know what? No, don't, don't. Don't put swears on what you have to say to people. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And also, uh, do what you say you will do. <laughs> as simple as that. Your word is your bond. And so take your word seriously because it reflects you and your character. Now let's put this all together and summarize for today. Uh, no, number one, the greater righteousness is the kind that takes sin seriously. Sin is serious to Jesus because it hurts others and it sabotages ourselves. So sin is seriously, sin is seriously, <laughs> take sin seriously. And number two, the greater righteousness sees the danger of sin based on its trajectory and what it leads to, not simply what it is at the moment. So what God sees as the danger of sin is the trajectory of sin. Uh, Jesus is not you know, as of course, equating these things that murder and anger are the same thing or adultery or lust, but he's talking about the danger of the trajectory of it. All right. So as I want to close today, um, you know, I, I think that there's a great illustration that sums all this up. You know, so I've, I've lots of plants in my garden. I love gardening, but um, my plants in my garden are all doing well, all but one of them. One of my flowers is dying. So I cut off some of the bad infected leaves, which solved the problem for a few days. But soon enough, the whole plant started dying again with the same infection that was once only on part of the leaves. After investigating this further, I learned that it was not something external that was the issue. The root cause, pun intended, was with the roots and the soil beneath the surface, concealed from my sight. There was an issue that was killing the plant. No amount of pruning the leaves would solve the issue. It was a matter of taking care of the root and the soil. Now, time will tell if I'll be able to save this flower, but more importantly, what about our own hearts? We may convince ourselves that the issues we have are merely behaviors or conduct, but they aren't. All our ethical and moral flaws trace to something beneath the surface. No amount of behavior modification can fix it. The cure? The gospel. The same gospel that covers our sin is also the medicine that continues to renew us from the inside out. And, that, and in that regard, we never graduate from the gospel. We only always go deeper into it. This is the greater righteousness Jesus is getting at. 
A righteousness that derives from the core of who we are because a society of Jesus followers will live differently with one another and will influence the world differently when we embody the greater righteousness of a healthy and well-cultivated heart. And with that, we'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.